Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Camden Town in London is home to bustling markets, street food vendors and alternative clothing shops. It's popular with both locals and tourists alike. However, it was once known as a sordid area full of distilleries, pubs and sex workers, not to mention being the location of a murder that still remains unsolved over a hundred years later. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 7 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. After working the overnight shift as a dining car attendant on the Midland Railway, Bertram Shaw returned home at number 29 St Paul's Road in Camden Town. Thursday, September 12th, 1907, had been warm and dry. Bertram must have felt relief leaving the confines of the compact carriages. Bert, as he was more commonly known, had departed his home the previous evening at 4.30pm. Upon his return, he used his key to let himself in through the property's front door. With the high prices of rent in London, even an issue over a hundred years ago, 
Rupert and his partner shared the house with their landlord and landlady. The couple had their own private space in the parlour, with an adjoining bedroom. When Bert arrived home and tried to open the door to the front room, he found it locked, and the key was not where he expected. It was a house rule to ensure the interior door key was in the lock. Furthermore, Bert's wife knew he would be returning home from his shift. He went to see his landlady and borrowed a key. When the door was finally opened, he found the front room was in disarray, not in the organised state that Bert was accustomed to. The drawers had been pulled from a chest and the contents were strewn around the room. Puzzlingly sitting on the table were dinner plates and empty bottles of stout. Bert's wife never usually had company while he was away. He became concerned because it was clearly not the remnants of breakfast. In a panic, Bert forced open the folding door to the bedroom and the light from the parlour cut through the darkened space. The shutters were closed, but Bert could see something heaped on the bed hidden beneath the bed covers. When he pulled back the sheets, he saw a woman's naked body. Bert immediately realised that his wife's throat had been cut. Her complexion indicated she was dead and probably had been so for several hours. She was lying on her left side, almost on her stomach, with her left arm behind her back and her right hand on a pillow. The scene in the bedroom was far more chaotic than in the parlour. Blood from the victim on the bed had pooled on the floor. Bert's partner's purse was missing from the room, as was some jewellery, an engraved cigarette case, and the keys from the doors. Most notably, the left hand draped behind the victim's back was bare of her engagement and wedding rings. Bert also noticed that the postcard album his wife usually kept on a small table was open on top of the sewing machine and the cards were scattered with abandon. Traumatised by what he had seen, Bert ran from the house to find a police officer and a doctor. Constable Thomas Killian was the first officer to arrive at the scene and Dr. Thompson appeared shortly after. Bert led the doctor into the bedroom. Upon examining the bed, the doctor noticed the pools of blood on the floor. Mrs. Shaw lay in a position that seemed natural for sleep, apart from her left arm, which was pulled behind her back, dripping with blood. The doctor believed her arm had been moved by the killer as they undressed her after death. There were rolls of curlers in her hair and a backcomb brush was lying on the pillow as though it had fallen out of her hair while she slept. The presence of the rollers likely indicated that Bert's wife had fixed them to her hair before bed, a possible indication that she was not entertaining a guest. As the doctor lifted the victim's chin from her chest, 
he saw a deep wound from the left ear to the right side of the neck. The weapon used in the attack had perforated the blood vessels, nerves, larynx, pharynx, and had almost cut through the vertebrae decapitating the victim. The only thing holding the head in its position were the muscles on the nape of the neck. The doctor determined that the victim would not have been able to cry out once the wound had been inflicted, as her voice box had been severed. The gash was deeper on the left side, which led the doctor to conclude that the assailant had likely been lying behind the victim, between her body and the wall when they reached around and slit her throat. Dr. Thompson later said, The head must have been slightly raised either by placing the hand under the forehead or by grasping the hair, more likely I should say by placing the hand on the forehead, raised sufficiently to get the sharp instrument as far back as possible to the throat. The head at first evidently was not raised sufficiently for the instrument to pass between the head and the bed. Consequently, there was a clean cut on the sheet and the tick of the bed. When a sufficient height had been obtained, it was simply a matter of a moment. There need not have been much blood necessarily on the assailant except upon the right hand. In 1907, techniques used to determine the time of death were limited. Rigor mortis had set in, suggesting that Mrs. Shaw had been dead for at least several hours. The doctor also noted that the basin of the washstand was filled with blood-tinted water. A petticoat was also left nearby. Drops of blood illustrated the likelihood that the killer had picked up a soap dish and water jug with blooded hands and used the petticoat to wash away evidence of the crime. Under the coroner's instruction, Dr. Thompson conducted a post-mortem examination on the victim. Her stomach contents included potatoes, bread and mint, likely a part of the lamb dinner that sat on the dining table. The level of digestion indicated that the meal had been consumed approximately three and a half hours prior to her death, and knowing Mrs. Shaw's routine, that she usually ate her evening meal at around 11pm. The time of death was believed to be sometime close to 3am. An examination to determine whether there were signs of sexual assault also took place. The doctor did not locate any seminal fluid, but he did discover that the victim had suffered from syphilis in the past. Based on the scene and post-mortem findings, Dr. Thompson believed that the victim had died of syncope as a result of severe blood loss. He believed the fatal wound had been inflicted by a sharp instrument, such as a knife or a razor, but if it were a razor... It would have to be held with a firm grip covered by a handkerchief or something similar to keep it rigid. The doctor did not think the killer would have much blood on their clothing if they had been lying behind the victim and they could have slowly moved to the foot of the bed to avoid the blood. When Bert Shaw was questioned about his wife's murder, 
he had to make a startling confession, surprising at least for that period. The couple were not married. What's more, the victim's name was not Mrs. Shaw. In fact, it was Emily Dimmock, a 23-year-old who had been living with Bert for the last nine months. Emily Dimmock was born in Hertfordshire in October 1884. She was the sixth child born to William and Sarah Dimmock and had a comparatively average upbringing. When she left school, Emily took what work she could find as a factory worker, a chambermaid in a hotel and as a housekeeper. But like some people who struggled to make enough money to support themselves in London, Emily turned to sex work. She went by the name Phyllis, and her beauty, charisma and charm made her popular with the locals. Emily met Bert Shaw in 1905. By January 1907, they had moved in together on the condition that she no longer make money through sex work, and they lived as though they were married. Bert later said, I did not know that she was living an immoral life. I knew that she had been living in a house of ill fame before she came to live with me. I was giving her one pound a week. I consider that was ample for her, and that there was no necessity for her to go anywhere else from the point of view of getting money, because she did dressmaking herself. Most people who cross paths with Bert and Emily believe they were a married couple. Their landlord and landlady William and Sarah Stock said they thought Emily was what they described as a respectable woman. They had no idea of the life she had lived. Mr and Mrs Stocks had never noticed her bringing men to the house while Bert worked nights. However, when the police spoke to people who knew Emily or Phyllis as she was called by many of her clients. Officers learned that she had used the house as a place to take men when she was home alone. A reporter for the Daily Mail wrote about Emily at the time. Quote, The dead woman, it is stated, is a member of the unfortunate class, but since she went to live with Shaw some months ago, she had shown signs of reformation. Investigators continued to search the scene for clues, while other detectives went to locations the victim was known to frequent, as the authorities attempted to establish her last known movements. According to Bert Shaw, Emily had been in the house when he left work at 4.30pm, the day before she died. Landlady Mrs. Stocks had seen Emily cleaning clothing in the wash house outside the back of the property until around 8pm. After this, Mrs. Stocks saw Emily with her hair in curling pins tidying the house in anticipation of Bert Shaw's arrival home the next morning. Then at around 8.20pm, Mrs. Stocks heard the front door shut. Neither she nor her husband noticed anyone arriving at the house after they went to bed at 11pm. Detectives visited the Rising Sun on Euston Road, a pub where Emily Dimmock was found most evenings. 
There they spoke with 31-year-old Thomas Roberts, a ship's cook who had docked around two weeks earlier. Roberts had been waiting for the police to arrive. In fact, he had gone to the Rising Sun specifically to wait for the police. Roberts was brought to Summerstown Police Station to make a statement. He told the detectives that he had first met with Emily Dimmock in the Rising Sun on Sunday, September 8th, several days before her death. After drinking together for some time, he accompanied her to the house on St Paul's Road and spent the night. The next morning he paid her 16 shillings and left. Later that night, Thomas Roberts met Emily again in the Rising Sun and while they were drinking, another man came into the pub, and Emily went to speak with him. Robert saw Emily leave with the man at 9pm, and came back at 11pm. They left once more just after midnight, and then Emily returned and Thomas Roberts again went home with her for the second night in a row. While they were in the house... Roberts remembered Emily taking a postcard from her bodice and showing it to him. It was addressed to Mrs. B. Shaw and signed by someone called Alice. After Roberts handed the postcard back to her, Emily put it into a chest of drawers in the bedroom. Roberts stayed the night again and paid Emily 14 shillings. They met up at the Rising Sun once more that evening, before going to the Euston Theatre for a while, and then went back to the pub to drink some more before again journeying to the house on St Paul's Road. Roberts would leave on Wednesday morning. However, he did remember that there had been a knock on the door, and two documents were pushed beneath the gap. One of the pieces of paper was an advertisement from a lady's tailor, and the other was a letter. Emily showed it to Roberts and took the postcard out of the drawer to allow him to read them both. Thomas Roberts believed that they had been written by the same person. The three-page letter was authored in pencil, and Emily gestured to a part that read, Dear Phyllis, will you meet me at the Eagle tonight, 8.30, Wednesday, Camden Town? After Roberts handed back the letter, Emily placed the document into an envelope and lit a match. She brought the flame to the paper and threw it in the fireplace where it burned, although the postcard was put back into the drawer. Roberts left after paying Emily either 12 or 14 shillings. He couldn't recall. Thomas Roberts told officers, I'd been frequenting the Rising Sun for practically a week, and naturally, being an innocent man, I wanted to prove conclusively that I had nothing to do with the murder. I realised the danger of having been in contact with the woman, and that the fact of having slept with her three nights, and her being murdered the next night placed me in a very unpleasant situation. Thomas Roberts had not seen Emily Dimmock on the night of her murder. He had been in the Rising Sun. However, unusually, Emily did not appear 
despite visiting the establishment most evenings. Roberts left the pub at 12.30am and walked home with his friend Frank Clark, who were both staying in the same accommodation and their landlady let them in. After confirming Thomas Roberts' alibi was solid, the police began to search for the postcard and letter he told them about. Detective Sergeant Osborne found the charred remnants of some correspondence in the grate of the fireplace, and Roberts was able to identify a portion of the letter he had seen. Officers searched the drawers, which were lined with folded paper, but did not come across the postcard. Not long after, a man named Robert McGowan came forward to tell the police he had witnessed someone leaving 29 St Paul's Road on the morning of the murder. McGowan was occasionally employed at the VV Bread Company on Brewery Road and left home at 4.40am to walk to the factory. As he passed along St Paul's Road, McGowan heard footsteps from number 29 which startled him enough to make him turn around. As he did, McGowan saw a man walking down the steps from the house, leaving through the front gate. He noticed the man was wearing an overcoat with an upturned collar and a hard bowler hat. What struck McGowan was the man's peculiar gait. His left hand by his side and his right shoulder jerked forward in a swaggering motion. So now the police were looking for a postcard and a man with a distinctive walk. Bert Shaw had not been able to return to sleep in the room where Emily Dimmock's body had been found. Instead, he moved into an upstairs room in the same house. On September 25th, two weeks after the murder, Bert began to unpack his belongings and discovered a postcard in the folded paper that had lined one of the drawers. Bert brought the card to Inspector Neil, and four days later images of it were published in the newspapers. It read, Phyllis Darling, if it pleases you, meet me at 8.15pm at the... The words rising sun were replaced with a drawing of a rising, winking sun. The note was signed off, yours to a cinder, Alice. In the early hours of October 4th, a reporter for the Weekly Dispatch told Inspector Neil that he had learned of a young woman named Ruby Young who had information about the case. That evening, Inspector Neil met Ruby at Piccadilly Tube Station. She told the officer that a man she knew, Robert Wood, had asked her to say that she was with him on the evening of September 11th and in the early morning of September 12th, when it was believed the killing took place. Ruby, who was living on Liverpool Road, had known Robert Wood for around three years. She first met him on Euston Road, where she undertook sex work. They went to the Rising Sun pub together and began to see each other every day, 
on Wood's lunch break and after he finished work. They would sleep together regularly until January 1907, when Ruby moved to World's Court, which made it more difficult for them to meet as often. They continued to see each other occasionally, but by July Ruby found out that Robert Wood was romantically involved with someone else. Ruby only saw Wood once between their breakup and September 20th, and she received a telegram from him asking her to meet on Southampton Row. That evening they went to the Lions Pub. While there, Wood turned to Ruby and said, If any questions are put to you, you say you always saw me on Mondays and Wednesdays. When she asked why, Wood just asked her again to say she would. After Robert Wood told Ruby he was going to meet his friend Joseph Lambert, the pair parted ways, but not before he left a card on which he had written in the corner, Mondays and Wednesdays. They met up once more on September 29th, and Wood had sent Ruby a postcard that read, Sweetheart, if it is convenient for you, meet me as before, Vitesse's at 6.30, and we will have tea together, and then go to the theatre, which I hope will be a little ray of sunshine to your life. Goodbye. Ruby Young had read a News of the World article about the postcard found at the murder scene, and when Robert Wood arrived to meet her, he told her, Ruby, I am in trouble. She replied that she knew, and placed a cutout of the article on the table and said, This is your handwriting. Wood picked up the paper and burned it, before saying, Have patience, and I will tell you all. Wood explained to Ruby that on the Friday before Emily Dimmock was killed, he had met Emily on Euston Road. Wood had been drinking in the Rising Sun pub with a friend when Emily approached him and asked for some change to play the gramophone. Afterwards, Emily asked him to buy her a drink and his friend left the pub while Wood and Emily continued the festivities. At some point during the evening, a boy came into the pub selling postcards. Emily wanted to buy one, but Wood told her, don't buy those. They are common. I've got some in my pocket from Bruges. He retrieved a postcard, and the illustration on the back depicted a mother holding a child. Emily asked him to write a nice message and post it to her. As Wood went to sign it, he said that Emily told him not to write his own name because, quote, the governor might cut up rough. Instead, she asked him to sign it from her friend, Alice. Wood had no stamps with him but promised to post it to her. When he saw her the following day, she reminded him to post it, and he did. It was Monday, September 9th, when he saw her next. They had a drink, but Emily left the pub with someone and said she would be back. However, after waiting for a time and Emily did not reappear, Wood decided to leave. 
Outside the Rising Sun pub, he heard her call out to him, What about my drink? Wood told her he did not think she was coming back. Emily explained to the man she was with that she would see him after closing time and went back into the pub with Wood. Wood had recalled to Ruby that Emily told him, I hate that man. After finishing his drink and leaving Emily in the company of a group of men, Robert Wood said he never saw her again. He told Ruby he had been out walking alone on the Wednesday night when it was believed Emily was killed, and no one was with him in the early hours of the next day, so he needed an alibi. He asked Ruby to say she was always with him on Mondays and Wednesdays. Ruby agreed, but worried she would get into trouble for saying she was with him. Wood allegedly told her, Your word and my word will stand against the world. Ruby was also afraid that her name would be published in the papers, and her mother would be hurt if it emerged that she was a sex worker. Wood promised her, If your name gets besmirched in any way, I will marry you if I get free. Ruby told him she did not want to marry him, but as they met up a few more times that week, he asked her again, You will be true and say you were with me on the Wednesday? And she began to get irritated by his persistence. Wood told Ruby that if she did not want to be true, she should say goodbye. Ruby did eventually agree to help him. With this information, Inspector Neal asked Ruby Young to arrange a meeting with Robert Wood so the police could question him about the postcard. That same evening on October 4th, Ruby waited for Wood to finish work. While they were speaking... Wood saw the inspector across the street. He told Ruby, Do you see that man over there by the gate? I believe he is a detective. Inspector Neal walked toward them and said he wished to speak with Wood. The inspector remarked, I do not wish this young lady to hear what I have to say. Wood agreed and told Ruby, Don't cry, girlie. I have to go with this gentleman. If England wants me, she must have me. Be true. Inspector Neal told Robert Wood that he had reason to believe the postcard found in Emily Dimmock's room had been written by him. Wood admitted this was true. He was taken into custody and brought to Highgate Police Station for questioning. Robert Wood was born in Edinburgh in August 1877. His mother died of tuberculosis when he was just two years old, so along with his older brother Charles, would move to London with their father George and their soon-to-be stepmother. Wood's father and stepmother had a son, James, before Wood's stepmother also died, and the children were raised solely by their father. Robert Wood was a good student, 
particularly interested in art, a subject he was skilled in. Wood began working for London Sandblast Decorative Glass Works Limited in the early 1890s, continuing to work there up until the time of his arrest. His manager James Hunter recalled that Wood had risen from an entry-level position to a leadership role during his time there. Hunter was of the opinion that Wood had an excellent character. He was reliable, industrious and more than capable. Speaking about Wood's personality, James Hunter said, he was always cheerful and light-hearted, and the reverse of morose and sullen. Robert Wood lived at home with his father and stepbrother James at the time of Emily Dimmock's murder, and a search of his room revealed no evidence to link him to the killing. After being cautioned, Robert Wood explained to officers that his younger stepbrother had drawn his attention to the handwriting on the postcard when an image had been published in the Sunday papers. Quote, I only told him it was like my handwriting, but I knew at the same time I wrote the card. On the same night I had a chat with my elder brother Charles who lives at 43 Museum Street and his wife Bessie. He is a conscientious chap, and both he and his wife advised me to go to Scotland Yard. I was very busy in the office because my principal was away, and I had to do his work, so my brother suggested that the next best thing to do was write a letter addressed to the Post Restant, St Martin's Le Grand, and stating I acknowledge writing the postcard and giving my reasons for not coming forward. He wrote the letter and Bessie and he and I signed it, and he addressed it to himself at the post-restant. His name is Charles Charlie Wood, and you will find the letter there. I want you to get it to show that I did not conceal the matter. Robert Wood said that he only met Emily by coincidence on the Friday before she was murdered, and he did not wish to be involved in the investigation as he knew practically nothing about it. Telling the investigator, Wood said, I did not care to be dragged into a matter of this sort. I did not think my evidence would make much difference to the case. If one has a good name, you do not care to get mixed up in matters of this sort. Inspector Neal told Wood that the person who wrote the postcard was believed to have been the same person who wrote a letter asking Emily to meet them at the Eagle Tavern on the night she was killed. Wood denied being the author and said he had just written the postcard at Emily's request. The letter Robert Wood spoke about writing with his brother, explaining his interactions with Emily Dimmock was found at the post office. It was dated 1am September 30th and read in part, We, the undersigned, make this statement and place it in the charge of the post restant at St Martin's Le Grand in order to safeguard our good faith in the matter should our course of action be impeached. We are aware that the postcard signed Alice published in the newspapers of September 28th and 29th by desire of the police, 
in order to obtain information in the Camden Town murder case, is in the handwriting and was written by Robert Wood. We jointly are anxious to assist the police in every way possible, but we are also anxious to avoid the publicity and personal trouble occasioned by an intermediate communication. Having regard to the non-reliability of newspaper reports, theories and comments, and being quite satisfied of Robert Wood's bona fides, and that his contribution to the matter can aid but little, we consider it wise to await the results produced at the adjourned inquest on September 29th, and while trusting that the intervention of Robert Wood may thereby be unnecessary, at the same time we determine should no satisfaction arise from the inquest, to make the avowal of Robert Wood without delay. Despite Robert Wood's insistence that he was innocent, and offering a documented reason for not coming forward, he was charged with murder. When searched at Kentish Town Police Station, three pencils were discovered on his person, the type that matched the pencil used to write the charred letter and the postcard. In response, he said, The handwriting is certainly very like mine. In fact, I should call it a very good imitation. If the young lady denies I was in her company, I cannot help it. One cannot be correct as to small details. But I have told you the truth, and I cannot do more. Robert Wood was called for several identification parades, and when he asked a warden why he was being called so many times, Wood was told by the warden it was to ensure that he was the man seen with Emily Dimmock and leaving her house. According to the warden, Wood then replied, If it comes to a crisis, I shall have to open out, meaning he would speak freely if it came to it. Following the identification parades, Robert McGowan identified Wood as the man he had seen walking out of the front door of 29 St Paul's Road on the morning of the murder. After a coroner's inquest which returned a verdict of willful murder, the grand jury indicted Robert Wood on the charge. He was to stand trial in December of that year. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Center. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. The trial began at the Old Bailey before presiding judge Mr. Justice Grantham. Opening the case for the Crown, Sir Charles Matthews told the jury that on the morning of September 12th, Emily Dimmock was found murdered in her bed. It was the Crown's case that Robert Wood had killed her. They argued that not only had Wood written the postcard, but he had written the charred letter that invited her to the Eagle Tavern on the night she was killed. The investigators were not the first to notice the author's penmanship either. William Moss worked with Wood in the glassworks. When a photograph of the postcard was published, Moss thought the handwriting looked familiar. He mentioned that he thought the person who wrote it could draw, and Wood agreed. A foreman at the glassworks also spotted it. John Tinkham saw the image of the postcard in the Daily Mirror. He confronted Wood, telling him he believed it was his handwriting. Wood told him, I acknowledge writing that card, and if you will be patient, I will tell you how I came to write that card. 
Tinkham explained to the court that Wood gave him a long-winded account of meeting Emily and giving her the postcard, the same story he had told Ruby Young. Still, he did not mention meeting her in the Eagle Tavern on the night she was killed. John Tinkham testified. He said I was the first to approach him on the subject. He told me his father was in a very poor state of health and that if he knew he was mixed up with this affair, it might have dire results. Understood his father had gouty eczemas. He asked me as a personal favour to keep this information to myself. I told him I certainly would. On Monday, September 30th, he told me he had seen his brother Charles and his wife, told them everything, and his brother's advice was that there was only one course for him to pursue, the straight one, to unburden himself to the police and tell them all he knew, that between them they had come to the conclusion to make a statement and send it, and I gathered to the police. That satisfied me that the authorities had been communicated with. Several witnesses testified that in contrast to Robert Wood's assertion that he had only met the victim a few days before her murder, he had in fact known her for over a year. Ellen Lawrence spoke about seeing Wood enter the Rising Sun pub looking for Phyllis, the name Emily Dimmock went by, on the night they supposedly first met, suggesting Wood was more familiar with her than he let on to the police. Others told the court that Wood had been seen with Emily on a number of occasions as far back as June of the previous year. John William Crabtree, a criminal who had been convicted of horse theft in the past and had boasted that he had only been to prison three times in his 56 years of life, testified that Wood had stayed with Emily on several occasions at a place Crabtree operated which the witness called, quote, an immoral house. The Crown let it be known that Robert Wood had no issue with being in a relationship with a sex worker, as he had been with Ruby Young for three years. Prosecutor Sir Charles Matthews said it was not only Ruby who had been asked to lie for Wood. Wood had also asked his friend Joseph Lambert to lie too. Lambert had known Wood for around two years and said they had met up on the night of the murder in the Eagle Tavern. When Lambert arrived, Wood was with a woman Lambert had never seen before. Joseph Lambert confirmed it was Emily Dimmock using the photograph shown of her in court. Lambert said the woman had curlers in her hair, and she asked him to excuse her appearance as she had just run out the house. While Wood was ordering drinks for them, Emily remarked, He's a nice boy. Lambert did not stay with them for long, and he gave Wood his phone number so they could arrange to meet again. A week later on the same day, Wood met with Ruby Young and constructed the false alibi. Lambert then received a phone call from Wood. Robert Wood asked him if he had read about the Camden Town murder, and Lambert said he had. Wood explained that one of his colleagues had mentioned it to him, 
and as far as he was concerned, he would be able to clear himself. Lambert said he did not wish to speak about it over the phone and suggested they meet in person to discuss it. When Wood arrived, he mentioned one of his colleagues at the glassworks and told Lambert, If Mr. Moss says anything to you about it, you can say we met, had a drink, but leave the girl out of it. The case was purely circumstantial. None of the victim's missing belongings were found in Robert Wood's possession, and when the prosecution had finished presenting their witnesses, Marshall Hall, the defence barrister, asked that the case be dismissed. Judge Mr Justice Grantham denied the motion, so Hall began his address to the jury. Hall said that Robert Wood would testify in his own defence, but his client was tainted by the fact that he had made statements that had been proven to be untrue. However, Hall contended there was an explanation for Wood's lies. It was the defence's case that Robert Wood was not hiding a crime, but instead wanted to distance himself from the so-called immoral life a person was said to have lived if they consorted with sex workers. The defence counsel said that Wood was a man of upstanding character, a great employee, and a caring son who did not want to upset his ailing father. Marshall Hall would ask the jury if Emily Dimmock's lifestyle had led her to meet her killer and liken the killing to the Jack the Ripper murders. In his opening statement, Hall said, It is not much more probable that the crime is the work of a sexual maniac, a murder similar to the murders which paralysed all London many years ago. Is it not possible that this woman who had descended to the lowest depths of prostitution, should have been acquainted with some man who proved to be a maniac seeking for his prey. The murderer was a madman. Is this man in the dock mad? Does he look mad? There is not a trace of madness in his past history. But if he is mad, then you cannot find him guilty. The defence called Robert Wood's father and brothers to testify that they believed he had been home on the night of the murder. They had not seen him arrive, but he was there when they awoke the following morning. Other witnesses also spoke of Wood's gate, confirming that he did not have a peculiar walk as had been attributed to him by the prosecution. After witnesses for the defence addressed the court, Robert Wood finally took the stand. He repeated his claim that he had written the postcard at Emily's request while they were in the Rising Sun pub six days before her body was found. Recalling the woman that had been murdered, Wood said, She had some intelligence, and I may say that appealed to me. On the stand, he admitted lying about some matters, but insisted he was innocent. Robert Wood told the court, With the exception of the false alibi for the Wednesday, that statement was true. It is true that I rang Lambert up on the phone and said I would come and see him that morning, 
and that I rang him up again to say I would come in the evening, as I could not come in the morning without the permission of the proprietors. It is perfectly true that I asked him to leave the girl out of the question. I was also with the object of covering up my doings on the Wednesday night. Wood went on to address his motive when asking people to provide him with an alibi. I was anxious to cover up that Wednesday night because I had my people to consider and I had myself to consider, knowing that Dimmock was associated with the rising sun, which I may say has rather a bad reputation, without wishing to hurt the feelings of the proprietor, and to be associated with witnesses in the case of that kind was very unpleasant to me. I did not say to the policeman that if it came to a pinch... I should have to open out. That is most unfair. I never said that. That has hurt me more than anything. It is hitting below the belt. It is most untrue. Robert Wood continued to testify, listing the reasons why he had not contacted the police regarding the postcard. Quote, I have heard what my brother Charles has said about sending the letter to the post restant. I was advised to go to the police but declined to do so, and so this letter was written. It fixed the date on which I had made the admission of writing the postcard. It was not thought the letter would be of any use to the police at all, but it was written as a guarantee of good faith. As a matter of fact... I have never been able to give to the police any information with regard to the actual commission of the murder. I did not know her acquaintances. I was a stranger to the people in the bar. With regard to the charred fragments of the letter, I had never seen them until they were shown to me three or four days ago. I admit that the writing on them is my writing, but the whole thing seems confusing. Robert Wood denied any involvement in Emily Dimmock's murder. Still, he could offer no reasons for why the charred remains of the letter in his handwriting was in her fireplace. Wood told the court, Having carefully considered the matter, I am unable to give any explanation of the charred fragments. It is a jumble. It is not a letter. The writing is in all directions. I do not know how that fragment came to be in the fireplace, where it is said to have been found by the police. The only thing I can connect it with is odd sketches and little things I was doing. As to the suggestion, it is a portion of the letter deposed to by Roberts. I never wrote to Phyllis making an appointment to meet her in the Eagle Tavern. I never sent to this woman a letter through the post only a postcard. Robert Wood had never admitted to being with Emily on the night she was killed until he took the stand. He now claimed that he had a drink with her and then said goodbye in the corridor of the tavern. He denied ever going to her home or sleeping with her. Perhaps in retaliation for Ruby Young's statements against him, would further tarnish her character by saying that he had been sleeping with her for three years, 
but never intended to marry her. The evidence concluded a week before Christmas, and in his summation to the jury, Judge Mr Justice Grantham ended by saying, In my judgment, strong as the suspicion in this case is, I don't think the prosecution have brought the case home clear enough to the prisoner, with the exception of the evidence of McGowan. The evidence of McGowan, if implicitly relied upon, would justify you in finding him guilty, but that evidence is considerably controverted. It was no surprise then that in less than 15 minutes after the judge said those words, the jury returned and found Robert Wood not guilty of the murder of Emily Dimmock. The scene in the courtroom resembled a sports final. Spectators shouted and rushed toward the defendant to congratulate him. Robert Wood left the court, treated as a hero. However, witness Ruby Young had to change her clothes and sneak out another door to avoid Wood's supporters. Reporting on the scenes in the courtroom, the Gloucestershire Echo detailed the events. The Old Bailey Court burst into cheering such as seldom been heard in a British court of justice. Wood smiled and turned to leave the dock, but stayed to hear the judge's final remarks. He was the calmest man present except the lawyers and court officials. All day he had kept his coolness and cheerfulness. He had cheerfully answered searching questions and held his own with the practice barrister. While the jury were absent, he had sat back in the dock and sketched the judge. A great crowd had assembled in the street outside. The cheering inside the court acted on them like a spark on gunpowder. Almost literally, for in addition to cheering frantically, they let off fireworks. Hats, umbrellas and handkerchiefs were wildly waved to the singing of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow, followed by Old Lang Syne. So where are we now? While the case remains technically unsolved, Many are convinced that had the prosecution's case against Robert Wood been stronger, he would have been convicted of murdering Emily Dimmock. The crime has gained a level of notoriety, immortalised in several books and even artwork by painter Walter Sickert. Writers and amateur sleuths have examined the case intermittently, with many standing firm on the belief that Robert Wood was the killer while other theories suggest Emily may have met her end at the hands of Jack the Ripper. That said, the only two people who truly know what happened are Emily Dimmock and the person who ended her life. Thank you for listening. 
and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.